decade is Tops for Pops. Hi, welcome to the first episode of a brand new season of Which Decade is Tops for Pops. We have moved into season three. Welcome back, Nick Parkhouse. Hello. Welcome back, DJ Trev. Hello there. We've had a nice little rest all of three weeks, and we are ready to recommence our deliberations. The Magic Randomizer this time has given us a year suffix of two, a chart position of one. So we will be looking at records that topped the charts on October the 11th in 1962, 1972, all the way through to 2012. Playlists, it's the usual formula, tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 31Y for YouTube. Which Decade 3-1-S, Spotify. Which Decade 3-1-E for our extra tracks and bonus bits. Now, if you've not been keeping up with everything, quick summary. Looking at our fledgling motherboard, we discover that all four of our earliest decades are tied in first position. Both of our more recent decades are tied in last position. So we're nearly a year into doing this caper run, basically none the wiser. We'll get there. <laughs> It gives us a reason to carry on, at least. It's awful if it was all like all done and dusted. Yeah, end of project. 700 short hours into this project and we can draw no conclusions. <laughs> I do think that the, the phrase fledgling motherboard sounds like something they would overdub a radio-friendly version of a song with. <laughs> you fledgling motherboard in fledge. If we need new substitute words for profanities we've not yet thought of, frankly, after all these episodes, it seems unlikely we could deploy fledgling motherboard also before we get going i've got to say a special welcome and thank you to jeff because jeff has allowed us to crack the double figure number of subscribers to our patreon jeff becomes our 10th subscriber to our patreon patreon.com forward slash which decade tops let's go for treble figures by the end of this season shall we you'll see us Rolling through town centres near you in our souped-up Citroen Zara Picassos. It's going to be mental. <laughs> if we get 100, if we get 100 subscribers by the end of this season, right, it's an open-top bus tour of Harrogate, Nersborough and Nottingham. I'll tell you what, if we get 100 subscribers by the end of this season, I will pay Chicory Tip to do a gig in Nersborough. And we'll all go and sing <laughs> Son of My Father in a park in Yorkshire somewhere. There you go, listeners. What an incentive that is. Get subscribing. Let's crack on with our first decade. Here come... The 60s! This is Telstar by the Tornadoes. It was the first of five top 50 hits that they had between September 62 and October 63. Each peaking at a lower position than the one before. Spent five weeks at number one. It was replaced by Lovesick Blues by Frank Ifield. Also reached number one in the USA. That made the Tornadoes the first British group ever to top the American charts. Not the Beatles. It was the Tornadoes. Where do we go with the Tornadoes? Right. So it was funny that we were talking only about two or three episodes ago about instrumental number one records. We were talking about how a lot of them weren't actually instrumentals we discovered because a lot of them actually had words. But here is one that is a genuine instrumental hit. Now, we talked about the shadows at some length, I think, not very long ago in, in the hideous, never ending saga of the guitar tango. At the other end of the spectrum for what instrumental music 
could sound like in the early 1960s, you get this, which still to me sounds like the far future now. So what you must have thought of this in the autumn of 1962, God only knows, because it sounds like an alien invasion or something. It's so weird, but in an absolutely fantastic way. We're at the start of the space race. Obviously, it's named after the satellite. It has an incredible kind of sci-fi vibe to it. To me, it sounds like a film theme from a alien invasion Mars attacks type film. And I think it's impossible to talk about Telstar by the Tornadoes without talking about Joe Meek. So if you've seen the film, also called Telstar, the Joe Meek story, which came out in 2010, I think, which tells the life story of Joe Meek, who was essentially Britain's first record producer, sort of realised that the studio could be an instrument when making records. So you didn't just have to stick a microphone in the middle of a room and let people play and sing you could actually use the production techniques that actually use the studio as a way of making music and you can hear it if you listen to something like johnny remember me by john layton which was also number one i think one of his earlier production stuff absolutely fantastic it's it, it again sounds so crisp and so different to the other stuff that was going on at the time he was an absolute pioneer joe meek and obviously he was responsible for essentially the sound of this they were a house band effectively the tornadoes they were billy fury's backing band for a bit and stuff realize what you could do with the studio and he he was a difficult character i think and ended up building a recording studio above a leather goods shop on holloway road and you know recording instruments in the toilets and in the stairwells and all this sort of thing he was a maverick in a lot of ways but without him you don't get george martin and uh, and all those people he was incredibly important for somebody you probably never really heard of I have always absolutely loved this. I do not know why. I think it's melodic. It's exciting. I couldn't tell you what instrument it is that's playing the melody in it. It sounds like a far future alien invented synthesizer of some description. I think it's absolutely magnificent. I've always loved it. I occasionally put it on the bangers on my Friday playlist at work just to frighten the kids who have no idea what it is. I have one caveat for it. And this is largely going to be dependent on your politics. In the run-up to the 1987 general election, somebody at Conservative Party HQ had decided that Mrs Thatcher needed to reconnect with the youth, right? So she'd been on Saturday Superstore. And she'd also, bizarrely, gave an interview to Smash Hits magazine. I remember this from being a Smash It subscriber at the time. And I looked it up the other day. There is a transcript of the whole interview online. She's got no interest in popular culture whatsoever, Mrs. Thatcher. is the one thing you take away from this. If you asked her to name one of the Beatles, I don't think she would be able to do it. She has no interest in popular culture whatsoever. Must have found herself at Smash It's HQ thinking, what the fledgling motherboard am I doing here? Right? <laughs> the only one song she can point to that she loved was Telstar by the Tornadoes. And that has always slightly tarnished it for me, is that the only song that I know for a fact that Mrs Thatcher liked was Telstar by the Tornadoes. So I'll leave you with that. Whether that affects your opinion of it, I do not know. But what a fabulous start to season three. I remember Margaret Thatcher's appearance on Saturday Superstore, and I remember the three records she was given to review. So it was Heartache by Pepsi and Shirley, it Doesn't Matter by The Style Council and Beautiful Imbalance by The Thrashing Doves. 
Now, she didn't like the Pepsi and Shirley because she said, where is the heartache? I don't hear any heartache, which is quite right, because Pepsi and Shirley were doing the steps model, singing a sad song like they'd never studied the lyrics with big daft grins on the faces. And then the Star Council, you know, her arch enemy, or at least in his eyes, Paul Weller, whose whole thing was about bringing down Thatcher, she went, hmm, it didn't matter. Well, it didn't really, did it? And um, I think at that point, one of the presenters said, can I just say, and I never thought I'd say this before, I agree with the Prime Minister <laughs> displaying his credentials there. And then it went on to beautiful imbalance by the thrashing doves. She said, oh, yes, this is marvellous. I do like the electric guitars, she said. What happened? Pepsi and Shirley was a hit. It doesn't matter whether the Star Council was a hit. The thrashing doves were never heard of again. They couldn't get over the shame. I would also say, by the way, that hearing the certainly the intro to Telstar by the Tornadoes and then finding out that the guitarist of the Telstars, George Bellamy, is Matt Bellamy from Muse's dad, makes Knights of Cydonia make so much more sense because that is clearly where that has come from. What was the TV show that she was on? Saturday Superstore or whatever that Saturday morning thing was. Yeah, because I'm thinking it, it seems like a shame that Five Star, one of the main things that they're remembered for, is somebody ringing up that TV programme and describing them as fledgling motherboard shit. <laughs> and uh, that they couldn't get through when Maggie was on, presumably. A lot of people were jamming the lines. So, uh, speaking of the shit word... <laughs> I'm going to try a different thing. I'm going to try and phrase things differently because music's subjective. We're talking about our opinions on music. I'm going to try and phrase things as such. Uh, This basically is because during our massive three-week break, I've had some time to watch some Star Wars stuff. I'm a Star Wars fan. And when I'm online, to give an, an example entirely at random from all the Star Wars universe, if I read somebody describing Jar Jar Binks as rubbish, that can wind me up a little bit. Whereas if someone says that they don't like Jar Jar Binks, I don't care. So rather than saying that I think something is bad, I'm going to just try and say that I don't like it. Um, This comes from last season as well, when I described the music of Gareth Gates as fledgling motherboard, unmitigated shit. And so what I will try and do now is I would say, I personally would rather eat shit and die than listen to the music of Gareth Gates. And you can see how that's much less confrontational. So fortunately, to start off this new season, it's not a negative review on this one. Um, Telstar or Terry Star, as he's known to his more casual acquaintances, keeps it interesting for the full three minutes. I think it's the energy of it. So we've had two instrumentals so far, I think, uh, Druid Sandstorm and Guitar Tango. And they're kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum because Guitar Tango is only three minutes long, uh, but lasts 15 days. Whereas Darude Sandstorm, it's the radio edit of it, but it absolutely romps through. And likewise with this, it just keeps moving. And what Nick said about it sounding futuristic, that's the main thing you get from this. Because even though you can tell that it was, you know, made in the 60s, Somebody could record that now and it would sound, oh, I know what they're doing. They're referencing the future as it was sounded in the 60s and things like that. And I actually, I kept drawing parallels with Darude because in certain tracks where you've got a keyboard sound that's so distinctive, Darude, Oxygen, Hot Butter, Come On Baby Like My Fire, and then a track like this, it's so of the era 
but outside the era as well. It's a little bit kitsch, but it's not so kitsch that it's cheesy. It's just interesting. The only thing that I would say about this, you know, pop music was still working out how to do it at this time. I mean, there's a harp that's in there. I think it's a harp anyway. And that's completely omitted from the video. But then the rhythm section's completely omitted from the video as well. I think the rhythm section could do with being a little bit higher in the mix. That's the only negative I would say. The video's a weird video. Uh, the keyboardist, he doesn't look massively comfortable, <laughs> but then that makes it interesting. Again, it makes it of the time. So, yeah, a great start to this season, I reckon. Yeah, that video. Actually, people didn't really make videos in those days because video technology hadn't really come along. And you can tell. <laughs> yeah. What it actually was, not a video, it was a scopy tone. Now, scopy tone films went on scopy tone machines and scopy tones were like very early video jukeboxes and you put your coins in and you could watch a scopy tone video so that's where it came from it is weird they leave out the rhythm section as you as you say trev what they've actually done is they brought the drummer that's clem catini more of him in a minute they brought the drummer forward so he's kind of leaning over the guitarist going what really like what you're doing there which was an odd way of using him you'd think they could get a wide angle lens even in 1962 and just a word about clem catini because clem catini is actually a legendary figure in that he has played on more number one hit singles in the uk than any other person ever he has played on 42 uk number ones and he's played on three records that we've already covered during this podcast he plays drums on mike's on wendy richards come outside he plays drums on love grows where my rosemary goes edison lighthouse and on son of my father chicory tip he carries on he's on kung fu fighting he's on the three degrees when will i see you again Rene and renato just man for hire clem catini I can see why it's Margaret Thatcher's pop record. And even more so now that I've spoken to my mother about it, because my mother has absolutely zero interest in pop music. It's all too modern for her. She basically parts company round about the time the Beatles first came out. Even my mother likes Telstar. She said, oh, yes, yes. They used to play it on the radio all the time. I remember that one. And my mother was quite a fan of Margaret Thatcher, so I could sort of see the link. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was a 37-year-old mother. Mark and Carol, the twins, were probably listening it on the light programme, and it's got sturdy, memorable melody. But I also think the subject matter would appeal to Margaret Thatcher, because she used to be a research scientist. And of course, Telstar was like the big technology story of the year. That wasn't the first communication satellite. It was the first one that could relay transatlantic tv broadcasts so there's a lot of kerfuffle about it tornadoes really quick to cash in because telstar launched in the july the single enter the charts in the september yeah it absolutely i agree it reflects that general mood of optimism around the benefits that technology was about to bring you can hear the optimism in the song you can hear the spirit of innovation in its production which matches the innovation of the satellite itself yeah, Joe Meek, this was the third of four number ones that Joe Meek had. I think one of his particular innovations was actually multi-track recording. I think before that, they just used like 
basically one microphone and they recorded everybody playing together live. Whereas Joe Meat recorded each person playing the track separately, then he could manipulate each track separately and stitch them back together. In some ways, he was the British equivalent of Phil Spector, because Phil Spector was pioneering his own production techniques at exactly the same time in the USA. He was certainly every bit as psychologically dysfunctional as Phil Spector. The most paranoid, substance-abusing, control freaks with nasty tempers. Both of them ended up committing murder. In Joe Meek's case, the murder was immediately followed by suicide. He died in 1967. Curiously, later the same year, another troubled gay man with entertainment connection did the same thing because Kenneth Halliwell murdered his partner, Joe Orton, before killing himself that very same year. There were a lot of gay men working behind the scenes in pop in the early 1960s. And that was, that was at a time when gay sex was still illegal. So there was Larry Parnes. He managed Tommy Steele, Marty Wilde, Billy Fury, Brian Epstein managing the Beatles and others. Simon Napier-Bell, he managed the Yardbirds, later went on to manage Wham. And there were our old friends from season two, Ken Howard and Alan Blakely. They were actually a gay couple. And they got their big break via Joe Meek when they worked together on Joe Meek's fourth and final number one. That was Have I the Right by the Honeycombs, all of which brings me neatly on to the B-side of the final Tornado singles released in 1966. I've been aware of this track for a very long time, and I'm really glad to be able to shoehorn it in. The track is called Do You Come Here Often? Starts off as a perfectly harmless instrumental, but then Towards the end of the track, there's this spoken word dialogue between two clearly gay men. They're in a late night bar. They're flirting and they're bitching. And the whole tenor of their rapport screams gay if you recognise the nuances of their rapport, basically. It's like an insider message. Um, and as one of them leaves, he says to the other, I'll see you down the dilly. Well, the dilly was a reference to the area around Piccadilly Circus. Now, that had long been a meeting place for gay cruisers, cottagers and rent boys. There's this kind of dark, subversive humour in the swan song for the tornadoes. I wonder if they even knew this had been added to the track. Maybe they didn't. But it really is at the opposite end of the spectrum from the futuristic optimism of Telstar, their first single. Now, I was eight months old when Telstar got to number one. I must have heard it on the radio in my cot. Somehow I've always known it. It's always been there. Yeah, to me, it absolutely encapsulates the sound of the space race. Listening to it now, can still hear the thrill of the new in it in a way that makes me feel nostalgic for the optimism of the sixes, which as a boy, I shared. I genuinely thought things were going to carry on getting better and better and better and what a time to be alive. In terms of nostalgia for the space race, that's a theme we'll be returning to later. Uh, by the way, um, you said you didn't identify the organ sound, Nick. I didn't either. The first thing it reminded me of was one of Rolf Harris's stylophones, but they'd not been invented yet either. I guess with the organ sound, the tracks that I mentioned, that you know, there's loads of things that have just got a synth sound that's almost... If you heard that synth, you would think of that track first. I guess um, the synth sound in Zombie Nation. If you heard mm -hmm. that, you go, oh, yeah, that's going to sound like Zombie Nation. Uh, and I think that's a great signifier of a track well made, that if you heard that synthesizer sound, you would first go to, oh, yeah, that's that's from there, isn't it? What you were saying about them capitalising really quickly on Telstar with the turnaround, 
I wonder if it was always called Telstar. I wonder if they've recorded something like, this is really nice. And then what could we call it? Oh, there's that satellite that they've launched because you could call it anything, couldn't you? You could call it Zombination. You could call it Sandstorm. <laughs> uh, you could call it Hot Butter. The other thing that I like the idea of was the drummer. Was it 41 number ones? 42. 42 number ones. Yeah. Now, anybody who's promoted in the rock and metal and punk scene will be able to relate to that because every single town's music scene could be taken to pieces and torn down by removing two key drummers. Every <sighs> single town. There's like a, dr- a bloke turns up with his drum kit, the first band are using his drum kit, then he's playing in the second band, and then you're like, oh, are the headliners all right to use? He's like, well, yeah, I'm in the next two bands as well. Honestly, drummers, because there's not many of them. It's a bit like goalkeepers in five a side. Nobody wants to do it. <laughs> not many people are very good at it. Uh, and yeah, I, I love that idea of one drummer being across a myriad of tracks because in any live scene in any town, that's the case. There's two or three drummers tops. The first Telstar satellite was launched on the 10th of July, 1962. This song was recorded on the 22nd of July, 1962. So literally Whoa, within a fortnight of it going up, they'd come up with this. I think Trev's probably right that they had a song ready to go and then thought, hang on a minute, this sounds like a futuristic space race. And yeah, it was recorded in that flat above the leather goods shop in Islington. It was a home studio recording, which makes it all the more extraordinary. Shall we move on? Here come the seventies. This is Lieutenant Pigeon with Mouldy Old Doe, but the first of just two top 20 hits that they had, both of them in 1972, spent four weeks at number one, and it was replaced by Gilbert O'Sullivan and Claire. So we were talking about in the 60s, and I mentioned that, you know, I think pop music in the 60s was still working out how to do it. Here we are just 10 short years later. And when you see the performance, for example, of these guys, of this song on top of the pops, you can you could see exactly how far pop music has progressed. So instead of a keyboard player looking awkward, uh, whilst the guitarist grins inanely, which was good enough for the Tornadoes, with these guys, Lieutenant Pigeon, uh, who performed under the name Lieutenant Pigeon in America, performing on top of the pops, dressed as Robin Hood, Willy Wonka, a witch and a pirate. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect top of the popsness. It's not bad. The unnecessary lyrics. I think it would be better without the lyrics, but it's a bit baffling. If you were to hear someone say, as they do, modern music makes no sense, right? I would want them to play this song to a teenager and see what a teenager makes of this. Because if someone's grinding their otherwise legitimate angle of, yeah, but the 70s had Bowie and Queen and Chic and Rainbow, just play them this and ask them to explain themselves. It's not bad at all. It's just, what? It's confusing. I think this is as confusing, certainly to my ears, as One Dance by Drake is to, say, somebody around about my age. You're listening to it and you're going, all right, yeah. Okay, what was going on back then? Possibly it's coloured by the fact that they were dressed as Robin Hood, Willy Wonka, a witch and a pirate, because what is going on there? And I think it's what is going on. Was that their aesthetic? Was that what they were going for? 
whilst I'm saying it's baffling, I think that's the best thing about it. It sort of gives me a headache and not a bad headache, just a, a two pint headache. You know, when you've gone out to the pub and you've had a couple of beers, but you're not hammered. So you decide you're going to watch a film you've been looking forward to. And then you get halfway through the film and you realize you haven't got a clue what's going on because you've had just a couple of beers too many. It's that type of vibe that's going on. If somebody asked me what this went like, because I was pretty sure I knew this. Uh, and indeed, once it started, I did know it. But I thought this was Son of My Father by Chicory Tip. So whether or not that's on a weird compilation album that I almost certainly have of bizarre songs that I find confusing. But yeah, I don't get it. And there's nothing wrong with that. If we completely understood everything, we'd lose the wonder of the universe. I can't say I didn't enjoy it a little bit. If only for how weird I find it sounding to my ears these days. I kind of some way thought it sounded like Son of My Father by Chicory Tick because it's got the, what I call the onka-chonka-ronka-chonka rhythm. <laughs> That's what it is. Onka-chonka-ronka-chonka. You don't yeah. have to explain what that rhythm means as well because it's, uh, it, it means onka-chonka-ronka-chonka. Yeah, in season one, episode one, I introduced you to the ongdinger-rongdinger bass line. I'm now <laughs> introducing you to the onka-chonka-ronka-chonka rhythm. Is that the genre? Is this onka-chonka-ronka-chonka? That's how I file it. <laughs> I love, by the way, that you called it lyrics. <laughs> the lyrics. I could have done without the lyrics. What the lyrics are, essentially, is somebody at the back of the recording studio going, right? So what we should do from now on for the rest of the podcast is <laughs> halfway through someone's monologue, you get somebody in the background going, and then just add a little bit of lyrics. Well, think how much songwriting's come along, you know, since then. You know, now you have great tunes like uh, Zombie, Zombie Nation, and 9pm till I come. You know what I mean? It's just streets ahead. So leaping on from our first instrumental number one, we get to a second largely instrumental number one in this. Band name takes the same route as the Imagine Dragons. So the Imagine Dragons name is an anagram of something, but they won't say what it is. You can go online and there's lots of obviously Reddit threads and stuff where people try to work it out. I reckon it's got something to do with gonads. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's just speculation. Um, and Lieutenant Pigeon is an anagram of genuine potential, apparently, which is where they got their name. And I love the fact that on top of the pops, there's just a close up of a pigeon. The whole <laughs> thing opens with a close up of a fake pigeon. Right. And that is by far the most logical and narrative thing about the entire performance. The witch to whom Trev refers, playing the honky-tonk piano, is 58-year-old Hilda Woodward, who is Rob Woodward from Lieutenant, Lieutenant Pigeon. He's the main man. It's his mum playing honky-tonk piano, right? At the time, I believe she was the oldest person ever to have been on Top of the Pops at the age of 58, playing honky-tonk piano while someone with a penny whistle and somebody in a pirate costume shouts, like a pensioner. And this was the second biggest selling record in the UK in 1972, right? And the only thing that outsold it that year was a bagpipe version of Amazing Grace. So what I love about the charts is that the best thing about the charts is and maybe slightly lesser in the streaming era, but certainly in the purchase era, is that it was the ultimate democracy. It was, this is what everybody is buying. Good, bad, indifferent. And of course, it throws up some what on earth are we thinkings, Mr. Blobby, etc., etc., Bob the Builder, right? So it does throw up all these things. But 
what came over the collective consciousness of the entire British public in the autumn of 1972, right? That this was the hit. This was the month at number one hit that everybody wanted to listen to. And the only thing I can come up with is that occasionally what happens, and I think we're going to get to this in the 90s as well a little bit, is that sometimes there is a lull between eras into which all sorts of weird stuff falls. So we're post-Beatles. We're not quite glam. I know that Sweet are in the charts at this point and Slade are in the charts and stuff. But there's this weird period where we're in a sort of David Cassidy era and then obviously there's things like Chicory Tip and Edison Lighthouse and this and Amazing Grace by the bloody Scots Dragoon Guards or whatever it is. I would like there to be an explanation of why the entire country lost its fledgling mind in the autumn of 1972 and thought a tin whistle and a bit of honky-tonk piano is what the country needed. We don't want your Stevie Wonder. We don't want your Marvin Gaye. We want this. Ronka-chonka, ronka-chonka with a 58-year-old grandma on top of the pops. I'm as perplexed by it as I was by Guitar Tango in the... I, don't even understand how somebody at a record company decided to sign this, decided that this was what we needed. And then somebody else must have sanctioned its release. And then millions of people must have bought it. It's not that it's terrible. It's just that it's like, what? And if you don't know Moldy Oldo, which you maybe don't as a sensibly adjusted human, I played it last night and my wife came wandering into the room going, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the other thing I would like to draw your attention to is that if you go to Lieutenant Pigeon's Greatest Hits on Spotify, <laughs> there are five songs on it, of which two are moldy old dough. If you went to see Lieutenant Pigeon, Lieutenant Pigeon live, I think legitimately you could probably expect them to play this twice. Maybe do uh, an acoustic version where they're sat on stools uh, and then halfway through get off for the key change like uh, Westlife. But then, you know, close the show with it as well, fully plugged. I mean, their other hit, Desperate Dan, sounds a lot like Mouldy Old Doe, right? And then they had a hit in Australia with a song called I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen. It's just more tin whistle and ronka-chonka piano. And then they did a version of Nut Rocker. Uh, off of B Bumble and the Stingers, which is just also honky tonk piano. Maybe they made an absolute ton of money on this. Maybe they're living in Barbados. They've made their fortune and good luck to them. I might be able to help shed light on the mysterious popularity of Moldy Old Doe. Yeah, lots of comparisons here with Telstar. Instrumental number one. Keyboard driven instrumental number one. Keyboard driven, basically instrumental number one that was recorded in a home studio. This time around, it was the front room of a semi in Coventry. Interestingly, its creators were also hugely influenced by Joe Meek. That led them to be similarly experimental with their production techniques. And again, recorded on a shoestring budget and did a lot of creative stuff on that shoestring budget unequivocally a novelty record, but novelty records were a category all of their own in the early 70s. As we've said before, they had their own category at the Ivan Novello Awards. There were loads of novelty records chucked out by record companies in the hope that they would crack the charts. Obviously, most of them didn't, but this was an era where hundreds of 45s were released each week, most of which sunk without trace. I know a lot about this because I inherited uh, a part of a record collection that belonged to my stepmother's 
third husband who was reviewing records for Record Mirror back in the early 70s. The first look, I thought, God, I've never heard of any of these. I thought I knew about music. Then I discovered that's because most of them were super obscure and super collectible. And I've spent the last few years selling them off. But I found all sorts of stuff contemporary with mouldy old dough. We've got um, Katina, don't stick stickers on my paper knickers. That's amazing. We've got Thing by Edwina Biglets and the Miglets. So putting these on the extras playlist. And we've got Mrs. Wilson's Budgie by Don Crown and his busking budgies. They're all worth a bob or two. But somehow, Mouldy Eldo was the one that broke through where the others didn't. I've said this before as well, but I loved novelty records at the time. I was 10 years old at the time. I loved them because they broke the rules, because they had the sort of surrealist, nonsensical humour that very much appealed to me as a boy. In fact, to me, it's entirely logical that when I was 10, I was listening to novelty records. And when I was 13, I was listening to progressive rock because both genres could be inventive. And there's a lot of whimsy at work. And a lot of my favourite progressive acts are Gong, Kevin Ayers. They both had silly, jolly novelty elements on their albums. Yeah, novelty aspects of Mouldy Eldo. You've got your penny whistle. You've got that rasping title line. Double piano. But it's especially Hilda Woodward that gives it the novelty. Here's the thing. I was amazed to find out she was only 58 because she looks like a grandma. By today's standards, she could pass for a late 70s. But she was the same age then as Shania Twain, Sarah Jessica Parker and Elizabeth Hurley are today. And I find that kind of mind-blowing. Lieutenant Pigeon were actually a side project of another group called Staveley Makepeace. Now, they've been releasing records since 1969. None of them ever charted. They got on top of the pops once. Didn't help. And they were quite a whimsical act, just as Lieutenant Pigeon were. They put out singles with names like I Wanna Love You Like a Mad Dog, Smoky Mountain Rhythm Review, Edna Let Me Sing My Beautiful Song, and All Time obscure favourite of mine because I found it in the same collection. They released a single. came out the same month that Moldy Eldo got to number one, actually. It's called Slippery Rock 70s. Quite similar to Moldy Eldo. It's got the onka-chonka-ronka-chonka rhythm, same tempo, barroom, piano-driven, tremendously catchy. Got a little bit of exposure because it was used on the soundtrack of Hot Fuzz and it's Stavely Makepeace's most streamed song on Spotify by quite some distance. So, yeah, one more hit. Lieutenant Pigeon quickly sank back into obscurity, but it didn't stop them releasing records. And if anything, they got weirder. There's a single from 1975 called Rockabilly Hot Pot. That'll stick in your head all day if you listen to it. There's a 1978 single called Disco Bells, which is anything but disco. And then in 2001, they brought out a 35-minute single called Opus 400, which is unavailable online unless you pay money for it. But I've managed to piece together various snatches from various places. It is utterly bizarre. But they clearly couldn't give a stuff about having any more hits. They just carried on pottering away, emulating their great hero, Joe Meek, and the front room of their semi. For that, I salute them. So Nick mentioned, uh, I think we've all mentioned, who can stop mentioning guitar tango? (laughs) I think it's, it's really interesting. What I was saying earlier about trying to be objective about music is very, very difficult. I hugely prefer 
moldy old dough to guitar tango. However, I think you probably have to say guitar tango is objectively better because it's musicianship and I mean, it's turgid, boring, and I don't really get it at all. Whereas this is just silliness and that's what's driving it. So I therefore prefer silliness. Yeah, you've also got the charm of the band because they're adorable on their TV appearances, all of which begin with a close-up on the pigeon, even on German TV. They look like they're having a laugh. They look like they're not taking it seriously, but you're kind of on their side. I do think we've had this before with the 70s. It doesn't sound like things have moved on at all, does it, from the 60s? Granted, it was a futuristic sounding 60s track, but if you swap these around and played them to somebody who didn't know the dates, I suspect they would go, Moldy Old Doe came out first. It sounds like from the dark ages. It was obviously pop, still sussing out what to do with pop music. And I think what they had sussed out was the novelty single. The shoddiness is part of the appeal because... Like the 70s were quite a shoddy decade in a lot of ways. This is this was the age of the Ronco Buttoneer. We've ever heard of that device. Everything was sort of held together with bits of string and ceiling wax. That's what it sounds like to me. We were about to go into three-day weeks, you know. We've, we were not living in a gleaming technological age of the sort that Telstar promised us. We still thought it was on its way, at least. Right. Here come... This is Pass the Duchy by Musical Youth. It was the first of six top 40 hits that they had between September 82 and February 84, but they also performed on Donna Summer's Unconditional Love in 1983. This spent three weeks at number one, and it was knocked off the top by Culture Club and Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Also got to number 10 in the USA. That was a rare achievement for a reggae single. And its success made Musical Youth the first black group ever to have their video played on MTV. So, again, we turn up to the 1980s. Our winner from the last season with a song that pretty much guarantee everybody will immediately recognise. We've talked about the specials, I think, fairly recently, and I've never been a huge fan of reggae. But it seems to me that while the specials and certainly earlier on UB40 were kind of dealing in the grimness of British life at the time, you know, with Ghost Town and One in Ten and all that sort of thing. Along come Musical Youth with what feels to me like a much more chirpy outlook. And I don't know whether it's because of the youthness of it, but I listened to their first album the other day and actually found myself really enjoying it. It's upbeat, it's musical it's melodic it's interesting there are other singles heartbreaker uh, not that one is great uh, never going to give you up not that one is great unconditional love i think is brilliant they sound more like a sort of new edition style american kind of boy band on that song so in some ways it feels like a little bit of a novelty song in the sense that it's got this weird word that nobody knows what it is They've obviously had to change the lyrics from the original. I remember them turning up on Blue Peter. So they obviously they were young. Some of them were very young when this came out. But do I like it? And it's one of those songs that almost it's outside of critical appraisal. It's just 
It's just past the Duchy, isn't it? Everybody knows past the Duchy. Everybody sings past the Duchy on the left hand side at a party without giving it any thought as to whether you actually care for it or not. And I think what I have found over the last couple of weeks is that I care for it more than I thought I did. But in the context of I actually found myself, despite not really liking reggae, liking a lot of the stuff they did much more than I thought I would. So I've sort of <laughs> discovered musical youth about 40 years too late here. I don't super love it, but I think it's a nicer cheerier approach to reggae than some of that slightly more downbeat political stuff that perhaps was going on at the time. I live in Harrogate. It's a fantastic place to live. And there is a traditionally very wealthy road in Harrogate called Duchy Road. And to this day, no one has taken the open goal of opening up a pasta shop there on the left-hand side, which really annoys me. Now, Out of context, you might not have a clue what I'm on about. But something else that annoys me is that even in context, with a lot of modern music, I have no idea what people are on about. However, the line between music I enjoy and music I don't enjoy is rarely about whether or not I could make head nor tails of the lyrics. From time to time, Rihanna says something incomprehensible. Sia rarely says anything I understand, but I don't particularly like Sia, so that's a bad example. But generally speaking, I'm just not bothered about what they're on about. It's just how it sounds. I've looked into the lyrics a bit, and I think we all sort of knew what it was about, but only through Playground Legend anyway. It's, to my ears, gibberish, but I still like it. At the end of the day, Oasis, when Oasis sings slowly walking down the hall faster than a cannonball, that's, that's gibberish, but I still like the tune. This is... It sounds like summer. It's vibrant. I've never been to Notting Hill Carnival, but I imagine this is what a lot of Notting Hill Carnival would sound like. Now, what Nick was saying about, you know, it's cheerful nature. An awful lot of reggae is uh, about dark subject matter. It's really good political commentary. And I don't think this is political commentary. So would reggae heads be sneering at this? I, I suspect a lot of them possibly did at the time. I don't know whether or not it's aged better for them. But would you put this with Uptown Ranking, for example, in that it's, oh, this isn't serious music, but does it need to be serious? Yeah, it might not have a political message. It might just be a really nice burst of summery pop music. And sometimes that's that's what you want from pop music. So it's not deep roots reggae. I'm sure I'm not the only person who was baffled by the lyrics. But even if you don't understand how to rule the nation with version, I think you'd have to be deeply miserable to not at least get a smile out of this tune. Yeah, I mean, there can't be many bands that went from recording sessions for John Peel, they recorded two sessions for John Peel, through to winning an award from Blue Peter in the space of a few months. But past the Duchy, it just represented a brief moment where musical youth were both musically credible and kitty-friendly. And I think that must have helped it achieve its, its success as well. I got into the rather musically credible route. I bought the single as soon as it came out. There was a lot of excitement around it. I was delighted when it got to number one. And I loved it every bit as the next number one by a group of children, which were New Edition with Candy Girl. That was just seven months later. I wasn't in the playground. I was a student. We all knew that the original version of the song, By the Mighty Diamonds, not as good, I have to say, the original, but we knew it was all about smoking marijuana. We all rolled our eyes when it was claimed that a duchy was actually a traditional cooking pot. But I'd always rather assumed 
that musical youth themselves didn't know anything about the drug references. Not so, as it turns out, because the group were already playing the original version live. And that included playing at a gig supporting Culture Club, who replaced them at number one, supporting Culture Club in London in July 1982. And the crowd reaction to pass the duchy or pass the coochie, as it then was, was so intense that they then decided to release it as a single. It wasn't their first single. They'd been making singles on quite cool little reggae labels before that. Anyway, at this point, they were signed to a major and the record company asked them to change the lyrics. So the coochie, which is a Jamaican patois tongue for a bong, became a duchy, the traditional cooking pot. How does it feel when you've got no herb? became how does it feel when you've got no food but a couple of drug references did remain and most people miss them because they were still like cloaked in patois so in reference to the bong we have itago bun which means it will burn and itago done which means that the smoke will go down into the lungs and stay there for as long as humanly possible and according to the chorus, this all makes musical youth jump and prance, and it also makes them rocking at the dance, two activities that traditional cooking pots would not usually provoke. <laughs> anyway, if the thought of children singing around, passing around the bomb makes you feel slightly queasy, then more queasiness was to come. The group were invited over to Michael Jackson's house, big red flag, they were also invited to re-record the theme tune for Chimmel Fix It, even bigger red flag, end up on the B-side, one of the other singles. But then, this is where it gets dark, I'm afraid, that subsequent fates of the five band members take you well past the queasy stage. So, Patrick Waite, the bassist, jailed for various misdemeanours in 1987, jailed again in 1990 for robbing a pregnant woman at knife point died in 1993 at the age of 24 from a heart condition while awaiting another court appearance on drugs charges. Junior Waite, the drummer, well, he was sectioned under the Mental Health Act, placed under the long-term care of his mother, and he died last year in another mental health unit where he was being treated for schizophrenia. Calvin Grant, the guitarist, he left the music industry for many years, became a virtual recluse because he was so disgusted at the way the band had been treated. He did eventually return to making music in the mid-2010s. So you've got the other two members, Dennis Seachel and Michael Grant. They have actually continued the band as a duo. But before reuniting, they didn't speak to each other for 10 years. All of them were ripped off. They lost a court case over royalties. And none of them made any money, and some of them ended up very short of money indeed. Does any of this spoil the love I once had for past the duchy? No, not really, because none of this had happened when it was at number one. The record sounded fresh and full of life. The band looked fresh and full of life. And it's that memory that I cling to when I listen to it. I wondered whether it was the biggest selling reggae single in the UK, but it isn't because Red Red Wine is ahead of it amongst other things, I guess. but Maybe of 1982, but then do you count Culture Club? Do you really want to hurt me? It's got a reggae rhythm. I did once, not so long ago, play the part of the Queen at uh, the Christmas cabaret show of the community arts charity that I used to volunteer for. And as the Queen, 
I, I was given the box of Dutchy original biscuits to promote because I was promoting it on behalf of Charles. And at the end of it, when I left the stage, I said, do all please have one. I shall pass the Dutchies upon the left-hand side. Got a laugh. <laughs> what, like my past the shop on Dutchy Road concept? Yeah. Uh, the way that that went down as well. Oh, yeah. Right. On we go to... This is Sleeping Satellite by Tasmin Archer. It was the first of six top 50 hits that she had between September 92 and March 96. And again, like the Tornadoes, each one peaked at a lower position than the one before. Spent two weeks at number one. It was replaced by End of the World by Boys to Men. If you've never seen the video to this, but you have seen the video to Shakespeare's sister stay, it's all right. You don't need to see the video of this because they're exactly the same. It's a bizarrely gothic style of video. Gothic meets sort of 80s hair rock somewhere in the middle, like Bonnie Tyler meatloaf video imagery in there. It's just all candles and net curtains and stuff blowing in the wind. And it makes me think they didn't really know where to pitch this. But then when I was watching it, I'm going, where would I pitch this? How do you pitch a song like this? Adults orientated soft rock. So yeah, meatloaf, Pony Tyler. It makes sense. I completely didn't remember the organ solo in the middle of this. I think that's probably for the reason because I don't think it adds anything to it. And really, lyrically, I only follow this as much as I can understand musical youth. Is the sleeping satellite to blame for the litany of things that she mentions? I don't know who is to blame, but I do think it's well written, medium paced, middle of the road music. It's pleasant. I have fond memories of this. My mum, I think, really liked this. It's a little bit coffee table, but I think vocals are really good. And yeah, overall, it works for me. I would urge you to check out, it's a legendary hardcore DJ called Wish Doctor. Wish Doctor did a track called Rush Hour that samples this and makes it about drugs. Again, because we've been talking about drugs now for the last two songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Tasman Archer could be on about drugs, for all I know. Shoot for the moon. It's a sort of sense of wild adventure. I'd definitely lose the organ jam in it. But yeah, I like this. Uh, I think it's our second song today about the space race, actually. Yes. I'm sure Mike will come back to that. So I was talking earlier about how in 1972, there just appeared to be sort of no prevailing genre that was dominant and there was all this weird stuff going on. And it fast forward 20 years and it feels the same in 1992 as well, that we're a bit pre-Britpop and we're out of the 80s. And, you know, in the charts this week, Boys to Men, Take That, Simple Minds, The Tetris Song, Dr. Alban, Bob Marley, The Wedding Present, Status Quo. I mean, it's just a right mixture of all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. Now, I like the song. It's perfectly fine. And it was quite interesting that after I played it, my streaming service decided to play me uh, Kiss the Rain by Billy Myers and something else that I've mentioned before that was like a one-hit wonder from the 90s which was like an acoustic guitar-based song. This, to me, if I lump it in a kind of eagle-eyed cherry category, it's that kind of middle-of-the-road, presumably pops up on Radio 2 every 20 minutes, slightly nostalgic, oh, I remember this old hit. Even I didn't really care for this at the time, and you know me, I don't mind a female singer-songwriter and stuff. I loved, 
loved in your care which was her follow-up single to this i think it only got to the top 20 incredibly difficult subject matter it's about abuse and stuff but it is beautiful it is an absolutely beautiful record and i think that's what prompted me to buy the album there's some all right stuff on the album again it's a little bit vanilla it's a little bit samey but i think it highlights what a dearth of talent the country was unearthing at that time she was nominated well she won the brit award for the best breakthrough act in 1993 the other people in that category that she had to beat to win that award were dina carroll kws Mm. undercover and take that right Uh, bear in mind take that was still in there it only takes a minute riding naked in jelly stage they hadn't reached their national treasure Gary Barlow songwriting stage. They were still in the early days. I mean, that is a rough list of new talent, isn't it? So if that was the best we could do, then it's perhaps no surprise that this was number one because it represented the best of new British music at that time. So nothing against her. I mean, this is not to have a go at Tamsin Archer, but God, I mean, what a paucity of like actual new upcoming musical talent there must have been for that to be a thing. Uh, she lost the Best Female Artist Award to Annie Lennox, as you know, Annie Lennox won that award every year from I think 1982 to no- 2002. I think mm-hmm. pretty much. So yeah, again, fine. It's fine. Okay, so Telstar, Mouldy Oldo, even past the Duchy had varying degrees of novelty appeal. The only novelty here is Tasmin Archer herself, because she came out of nowhere, had a number one with a first single, won the Brit Award for Best New Act a few months later. A star is born, we were told. But then they said the same thing about Beverly Craven, who won the same Brit Award a year earlier, and about Betty Boo, who won the same Brit Award the year before that. Now, Kasmin Archer's last top 40 hit was in 1994. Beverly Craven's last top 40 hit was in 1993. Betty Boo's last top 40 hit was in 1992. So the Brit Award for Best New Act was a bit of a poisoned chalice in those days. Basically, it meant you had one more year before disappearing back down the dumper again. You sense that Tasmin Archer was the British record industry's idea of what a Best New Act should sound like. You do wonder if their discussions went something along the lines of, we need to find the next Beverly Craven. A flawed strategy, I would contend. Uh, Sleeping Satellite, it was co-written by a guy called John Beck. He later wrote, or co-wrote, I should say, Put Your Records On for Corinne Bailey Ray, and he co-wrote Solo Dancing for Indiana, another act that was tipped for stardom before sliding very quickly from public view. He was a principal collaborator with all three singers. I think his best work, and I'm so glad I can shoehorn this in, I think his best work was on another track by Indiana called Blind As I Am. Should have been massive if only her record company hadn't cocked up her career so badly, but that's another story. We've got another link with Telstar here. Sleeping Satellite is casting a wistful gaze back to the optimism of the space age in the 1960s, and most particularly to the 1969 Apollo moon landing. 
It is said that the sleeping satellite in the song actually refers to the moon. The chorus talks about the dream that died with the eagle's flight. Well, the eagle was the name of the Apollo 11 lunar module. There's a general sense of where did we go wrong? And there's a suggestion that mankind has since squandered its potential. That's a big topic for a song to deal with. Tasman Archer does a creditable job with it, but ultimately... I think the song still feels a little bit lacking in character. We're not very far away from Alita Adams, Desri, Gabrielle. There's not enough here to make it uniquely Tasman Archer. That said, the arrangement is good. The song craft is solid. There is some emotional heft to the performance. I like the organ solo, actually. And I think the overdubbed vocals in the break, they're a particularly nice touch. A star wasn't born... But Tasman Archer's brief moment of stardom was a perfectly respectable one, if perhaps a little bit too respectable. I did wonder if someone would mention Eagle Eye Cherry when I was listening to this. I was like, yeah, that's kind of in that genre that's not really a genre. You know, it's very slightly folky M.O.R. I think, Trevor, you may have been subliminally reminded of Eagle Eye Cherry because the chorus of Sleeping Satellite refers to the Eagle's Flight Yeah, I think what you were saying about the lyrics and the message, that adds an extra level to this, actually, Mm. because, damn, if she wasn't proved right, humanity's lost its way. And here we are, what, 31 years later, going, well, this is rubbish. Good point. We haven't followed the tornado's dream. We've followed Tasman Archer's nightmare. She was the true prophetess out of her time, wasn't she? I absolutely love Beverly Craven. For reference of course you do so you said that the tetris song was in the top 10 this year was it same week yep a magical tangent to go off on so that's by dr spin who's dr spin andrew lloyd webber ah andrew lloyd <laughs> webber goes rave doing toy town techno possibly one of the low points of toy town techno but as a record that i still think has a nice little bit of novelty value well, Tetris was to techno as Sarah Brightman and Hot Gossips. I lost my heart to a Starship Trooper was to disco, if you want to make tenuous Andrew Lloyd Webber connections. <laughs> I would urge you to listen to In Your Care, which is absolutely beautiful. A lot of it is sung kind of a cappella and stuff. It's really haunting and really beautiful. Well, you know where to find In Your Care, don't you, listeners? All right, time for... Long and winding road that leads to your door. This is the Long and Winding Road by Will Young and oh, it's him again, Gareth Gates. Welcome back, Gareth. Third of four number ones for Will Young, also the third of four number ones for Gareth Gates. Will Young had 11 top 10s in total, most recently in 2011, whereas Gareth only had seven top 10s most recently in December 2003. This spent two weeks at number one. It was replaced by Last Ketchup's Ketchup Song. It was officially a double A side with Gareth's cover of Suspicious Mind, but the single also included the third track. That was Will's cover of Jackie Wilson's I Get the Sweetest Feeling. Okay. There are various positions I think you can take with this song, all of which are valid in my opinion so the first one is i know a lot of people who don't even rate this as a beatles song think that it's an overly sentimental late era mccartney wine that wouldn't make their top 50 best beatles songs of them all so why on earth would you cover this so there are those people who just again 
all opinions valid. Uh, then there will be a lot of people, I think, an awful lot of people, let's say 80%, who go, what's this proto-TV talent show Robson and Jerome-esque pair doing anywhere near the Beatles' The Long and Winding Road, which is a untouchable classic. And then there'll be a very small group of people who think that Gareth Gates and Will Young's The Long and Winding Road is beautiful. And I sit in that very small group of people who bought it at the time at the end. And I know that this is a ridiculous position to take. Now, look, let's start by saying I also love the Beatles' Long and Winding Road. I'm not huge. I'm a casual Beatles listener. I'm not a deep Beatles fan like a lot of people are. I am a casual Beatles listener. As a casual Beatles listener, it's always been one of my absolute favourites of their songs. I've always absolutely loved it. So the biggest stars of the day turning up and covering that in 2002 was fine by me. Teen Idols, I've always covered songs. Puppy Love, we talked about. They got a Teen Idol, covered an old song, was a massive hit. That's all that is going on here. You've got two Teen Idols fresh off the telly, Everything they touched in 2002 basically went to number one, as we established with any one of us when we talked about that, and this followed suit. What I think it does right is that the production on it is for a Simon Cowell-esque early 2000s pop record. It is surprisingly low-key, the production on it. Famously, Paul McCartney hated the production. We're talking about Phil Spector. Hated Phil Spector's production of The Long and Winding Road. He said he would never have women singing on a Beatles song. He added a choir, didn't he, and brass and strings and all sorts. Hated it. Hated Phil Spector's production. I actually think the production on the Gareth Gates Will Young version is no worse than Phil Spector's. I think they actually do really rein it in, in a lot of ways. There's very little going on other than the vocals on this. Yes, it is a little bit oversung. It is a little bit, you know, when there's a tiny moment of silence, somebody has to do a ooh to fill the gap, right? So it is a little bit oversung. I will give them that. But I think that they sound terrific together. There's not a lot of male duets around either. Lots of feats and stuff. There's not a lot of man-on-man duet action going on. They sound great. They look great. The video is as stripped back as the production is. There's nothing going on. It's just the two of them in the dark. So, yes, the double A side suspicious minds is ridiculous. It's Gareth Gates doing Elvis. It's preposterous. This, I mean, it sounds like sacrilege to say that I like it as much as the original Beatles version of something, but I think it really holds up. I think it is a very well-made, well-sung cover version of a classic song that they are entirely entitled to do as the biggest names in pop music in 2002 and i love it come on then if i had to pick a piece of music to describe why i don't like competition winners and talent show tv this would be it they've taken what i think is a great song and managed to turn it into a great song so on paper, the outcome is still a great song, right? Right? Is it? I mean, it adds nothing. For me, it underlines how okay I find their voices. Yes, they're talented, but with that talent that they've got, and I only find them okay vocally, they've managed to render something that was already great, and they've not ruined it. But, I mean, I've got to say, if you feel 
in any way like me about this and you've not seen any of the live videos of this, please don't watch a live video of this because it is like they are trying to out pointless each other. There is just so much more excessive vocalization and air clutching and everything about the live version of it that I saw thoroughly underlines the word why. Now, I'm a big fan of gateway drug music. Cheesy dance music gets a lot of people into underground dance music. Lots of people end up into, you know, very, very heavy metal or hardcore punk or extreme music via the likes of Linkin Park and My Chemical Romance and uh, Nickelback and things like that. So I think there will be some people who, after this, went and listened to the Beatles. It's not one of the better known Beatles songs, I guess. But I still find myself asking why, why, why does this exist? Surely, surely it's for charity, but I don't think it is for charity. I think it's a really unimaginative song choice. And it's Simon's, isn't it? My mate Simon Cowell, who I'm not on board with anyway. It is, for me, why I think that TV talent shows are just derivative. They could have done any song in the world and then they've done this. This is the best song this week by miles, as far as I'm concerned. It's my favourite song. If I'm going to stop saying things like it's the best song, it's my favourite song this week. And it's also my least favourite song this week. This is a brilliant, brilliant piece of songwriting, I think, but it already existed. And it just didn't need to be done. I think this would be outstanding if you were at an intimate live show, not as a pop single, just at a show, and then they just come out and do a cover of this. I, oh, wow, what a great moment. Pop single, why? I do think the instrumental is quite pedestrian. I think really the instrumentals, it's just a karaoke uh, instrumental of this, that they've then done a very, very good karaoke over the top. I am more conflicted about this than I've been with any piece of music we've had so far. It's outstanding in the world of the music that I like, this type of song that I like. I really, really think this is a great record that absolutely already existed. So why, why have we got another version? No, how am I charting this? Because it's either number one or it's last. I suppose it would be like you or I, doing a painting by numbers of the sunflowers wouldn't it you'd still get a really really <laughs> lovely freshly painted new yeah. version of the sunflowers to hang up but it's not the sunflowers is it yeah. i'm still trying to find different ways of basically saying what nick says because uh, spoiler alert i'm basically with Nick on this, more or less. For a record whose primary purpose was merely to combine the fan bases of the two finalists of Pop Idol in order to maximise sales, yeah, this is, I think, a surprisingly classy piece of work. The two voices are in the same register, so they blend really well together. Both singers deliver their lines with delicacy and actual feeling it doesn't to me have any of the usual symptoms of a hastily cobbled together cheapo cover version cashing job and i think this becomes clearer when you look at the credits for the recording this was produced by stephen lipson he worked with trevor horn on those frankie goes to hollywood hits later worked with hans zimmer on movie soundtracks there was the, the dark knight rises more recently top gun maverick 
He's won numerous awards, everything from Annie Lennox's Diva album all the way up to Billie Eilish and uh, No Time to Die, the Bond theme, via S Club 7, Don't Stop Moving. And if we look at the strings, the strings are arranged and conducted by none other than Nick Ingman, who I talked about last season in connection to his work on I Don't Want to Talk About It, Everything But The Girl. Went to a lot of detail about all the amazing stuff that Nick Ingman has done. So the powers that be have wheeled out the big guns to fulfil their brief of constructing a quality product, as befits the status of the original song from Let It Be. They don't really want to lay themselves open to charges of desecrating what many people regard as a masterpiece, even if Paul McCartney didn't. It's like they've taken out insurance on that in a way. Okay, I'm not saying that this version is also a masterpiece. It takes precisely zero risks with the interpretation. That leaves it sounding, I guess, overly reverential. And yeah, like Nick, I could do without those little extemporized vocal twiddles, unnecessary woo-woo-woos and yeah, yeah, yes. But if you view it through the admittedly rather constricting prism of reality TV pop, I think this has to be one of the better ones. I think it's the lack of risk that bothers me. The biggest risk they're taking is that it's such a classic track that people like me are going to go, oh my God, why on earth would you do that? There's going to be loads of people who'll be annoyed about this. There'll be people spinning in their graves about this. Granted, but at least they put time and care and effort and money into its construction. And at least the two performers sing with a genuine feel for the original song. So I think that is something. To continue with the painting by numbers, I think what you're saying then is it's painting by numbers, but you've whipped out the oil paints to do the painting by numbers. I think you've done six months of art classes before you've attempted sunflowers. I think we can go that far. Have you ever listened to the, um, you know, they brought out a new version of Let It Be because the Beatles and Phil Spector never met when it came to producing Let It Be. The Beatles in the process of breaking up Phil Spector was drafted in to do what he could with the tapes, and he just brought in the string sections that the Beatles had never commissioned, slathered it in all this gloop. And then there was the Let It Be Naked version, which was built up for the original master tapes, and the selling point of that is this is how it really should have sounded. Have you ever heard the naked version of Longer Winding Road? I never have. I feel I should have done in preparation for this. No, I listened to Let It Be yesterday. It's a mixed bag, isn't it? Let it be, I think. There's some obviously some great stuff on there, but Yeah, some rubbish as well, isn't there? I don't I don't hate Phil Spector's production. I think he overdoes it a bit, as Paul McCartney himself, I think, acknowledged, but I don't even hate the produced version of the original. No, I don't. I do tend to feel with cover versions, you've got to change something. And it's very, very well done, but it's very similar to the original. They've not stepped up the pace, they've not It's the duet. <laughs> Which one of them is it that sounds like they're doing a quite good impersonation of George Michael? There was definite moments where I was like, oh, this sounds like George. I'm not in love with either of their voices, but whoever sounds like George annoys me least. I find it quite difficult to tell their voices apart till I actually read who sings which bit. I thought Will sang the first verse, but actually Gareth sings the first verse. They're remarkably similar sounding. The worst thing could have done was be bring out all the other pop idol finalists in a big choir at the end. Zoe Burkett and Rosie Ribbons and Corbin. Can you believe this is our first introduction to the Beatles on this podcast? 
that's crazy. Also, interesting factoid, uh, there can't have been many double A-side number one singles where each A-side came from a different album because the Long and Winding Road was on Will Young's debut album from now on and Suspicious Minds was on Gareth Gates's debut album, What My Heart Wants to Say. Wow. They thought of everything with the promotion of that single, didn't they? Trying to get you to buy two albums. I think we've talked about this long enough, don't you? Shall we progress to... Shame bright like a diamond Shame bright like a diamond This is the return of Rihanna with Diamonds the seventh of nine number ones that Rihanna has had today, although she was only the lead artist on six of them. Spent a single week at number one. It was replaced by Swedish house mafias, Don't You Worry Child. But it did go on to spend 50 weeks in the top 100. This is one of Rihanna's more coherent songs, I think, even given the fact that diamonds don't actually shine they refract reflect and disperse when you compare this lyrically to for example rude boy or work 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 this reads like shakespeare um she's starting to edge towards the seer slurry method of singing which i really do not enjoy but rihanna is still capable of bringing it back to you know at least they're being like syllables in the sound is as opposed to you know know, just sound like that rihanna she is a pop star and she herself shines brightly like a star rather than a diamond uh because i've already covered how much that annoys me um and i think she's better when she's on straight up bangers this is it's fast enough to have the energy to carry it on to the end i prefer the ones where she's been produced by Calvin Harris, David Getter and stuff like that. That's the type of music that I prefer. But I also think that's when Rihanna's at her best. I think Rihanna benefits. She doesn't have, for example, Beyonce's level of smug self-satisfaction. She always comes across to me just playing it as it is. This is what I do. There you go. And I think whilst I personally wish she operated more at the end of Lady Gaga, for example, danceable pop music, because she rarely makes the type of music that I like, but I thoroughly understand why Rihanna's massive. It's not Michael Petit, but it sits next to some of Alicia Keys' stuff. Uh, I think it's well made. There's a moment in the video where there's a, a horse rears in the background, and consequently the entire video looks like a Lloyd's Bank advert, and that sort of adds to it as well. It's not what I would listen to. It's not my kind of music at all. I think it's well done. And I think Rihanna is a legitimate star. And compared to her peers, she's one of the ones I prefer, I would say. So when Stargate, Stargate had worked with Rihanna before on um, Only Girl in the World and uh, Don't Stop the Music, I think. And when they wrote this, Benny Blanco said it was never intended for Rihanna. They were going to give it to, I think, Kanye or Lana Del Rey, I think, whatever. And then they got, I mean, talk about Sia, they got Sia in to write the lyrics for Diamonds. And when Rihanna first recorded it, Sia thought it was her version because she sounds so much like Sia in the delivery of it. Sia thought they were releasing her own version of it. I mean, it's got Sia all over it, I think, lyrically and well, apparently she wrote the lyrics in 14 minutes. Like you said, Trev, she should have probably taken another 20 minutes and had another crack at it. But there we go. I mean, it's an absolute monumental hit for Rihanna. If you're on a TV quiz show and you had to name a Rihanna song like this, you'd go Umbrella and this probably would be the maybe the first two you'd grasp for. 
But actually, it's quite funny that it, it came at sort of the end of a imperial phase. You assume this was in the middle of a continued success. But the next four singles after this failed to make the top 30. And it hasn't had much chart action since then. So it was almost the end of a long run of big hits rather than being like right in the middle of them and stuff. So people have said it's um, the James Bond theme that never was with its kind of diamondy, glittery, sparkly. It's got vague whiffs of uh, Diamonds of Forever, I suppose, a little bit. And ironically, of course, it kept Skyfall by Adele off number one in the week of the release and stuff, which uh, obviously was a Bond theme. But I'm slightly the other way to Trev, I think. I think I like this Rihanna more than the EDM Calvin Harris Rihanna. I think this is an absolutely magnificent pop record. Yes, it is not a million miles away from Chandelier or some of those other big sphere. They're almost power ballads, aren't they? Some of them, some of those sphere ones, you know, the oil and gasoline and Chandelier, those kind of things. The second they played it to her and said, you know, we've written this for you, she absolutely loved it, recorded it, came out almost immediately. Obviously went straight to number one, like you say, Mike, spent a year in the charts. I think it's right up there with the absolute best singles that Rihanna has released. I think it's up there with Russian Roulette and Umbrella, obviously. And going back to what Trevor said, it's the sort of thing I do like. I do like a big old mid-paced diva-esque pop banger like this. And I think this is a magnificent example of one. Well, as I said in the finale episode of season two, I am currently on a bit of a journey with 2010's pop. So having previously either dismissed it or the last part of the decade actually completely ignored it, I'm gradually starting to understand what makes the good hits good. So I'm coming to Rihanna's Diamonds with fresh ears. I'm ready to give it a fair assessment. I do still have certain issues with Rihanna, though, and I talked about these issues last time she came up on this podcast. Because she is a massive international superstar, I find myself judging her against other massive international superstars. And when I do that, I still find her wanting. Unlike, say, Beyonce or Katy Perry, who are both highly charismatic and compelling when I saw them live, brilliantly conceived staging to match, I still feel that Rihanna essentially gets chucked around various producers and various genres according to the whims of the time. Her live staging mainly consists of chucking as many flashy gimmicks out as the budget will allow without those gimmicks actually adding up to anything of substance. And to me, she didn't have the star power on stage than those other two artists. Anyway, yeah, Diamonds seems to have been conceived as a deliberate step away from Rihanna's EDM bangers face. Began two years early with The Only Girl in the World, effectively concluded with Where Have You Been, which is the track that came up before. And Where Have You Been only just dropped out the top 40 a couple of months before Diamonds came in at number one. So even though the production, I think, actually does still sound a bit EDM-ish in certain ways, production-wise, the tempos drop right down to 92 beats per minute. The song's intention is directed more at the emotions than at the dance floor. Yeah, principal songwriter here is Sia. I know Sia is revered by many. I have to say my personal take is that her haircut is a lot more interesting than her music. I may be wrong. I may be forced to recant. That's where I am. 
currently on my seer journey. Maybe at the start of my seer journey. Who knows? Anyway, as a song, I am a bit underwhelmed by Diamond. Sorry. It didn't matter with Where Have You Been. That got away with it by virtue of its being a dance track. Matters more to me here because we're in a situation where the song actually does have to do more of the work. I note the drugs references with interest. Yes, more drugs references. The words ecstasy and molly crop up in the lyrics, which is where I feel I should explain to older listeners that molly is another term for MDMA, which some of us may recall from the 90s. There's no radio edit, which alters the lyrics to be about kitchen equipment. So we are left with unequivocal references to drug usage being flung at our pop kids. I shall not presume to offer judgment on those matters here. It is above my pay grade. This record, I'm afraid, doesn't move me. It hasn't travelled far enough away from EDM to offer anything substantially new. So I'm just left with a rather repetitive plodder, which to me falls short of its aim to portray the joy of being in love. Don't get it. I was entirely unaware about the drug references. Uh, I miss them, but I miss a lot of this lyrically. I'm with you on Sia. She's a little bit Emperor's New Clothes for me. I've been told repeatedly by people, oh, it's such intelligent stuff. And I just, I'm not convinced that it is. But then I am so far away from the target demographic of Sia. I don't think she'll be losing any sleep over what I think about her. I'm astonished by this. <laughs> I thought this was just going to be genuinely re- universally regarded as an absolute banger. I think this is a very good pop song, but this is a tough week to call because I don't think there are any outliers. I think the one I'm going to put at number one. Yeah, go on, let's do this. Let's make that call straight away, Trev. Come on. I think for the purity of pop, I'm going musical youth. It's just a good pop song. I'm going. Rihanna in the meh, and I think I've turned a corner, and I think Tasmin Arch is going in the meh zone as well. And so third place, I'm going to give to the Tornadoes, because I particularly enjoyed Nick's description of it, and that bright, optimistic, futuristic sound. Yeah, I'm excited thinking about it, whereas Tasmin Arch, I think, is a, a very good song, but I'm not excited thinking about it. A bit too coffee table. I am going to put Lieutenant Pigeon in the last place and Gareth and Will second. And I am still, uh, I'm struggling. Lock that in before he changes his mind. It's locked in. Right. (laughs) Bombshell, because you left it to Lieutenant Pigeon and Will and Gareth and you totally subverted my expectations on that one. Wow. It's a wonderful song, isn't it? It should be number one. That's what Gareth and Will should have done. It should have been number one. If they'd have added a little bit to it, if there was any kind of edge, if there was any kind of change, it's a tapping number one because I love that song. The fact that it's not number one is a savage indictment. <laughs> Do you know what, Trev? You just used that phrase tapping. I can now confess for the entire first two seasons of which decade is tops or pops, I had no idea what you meant by the phrase tapping. I actually had to go and look it up. It's a football reference. You tap something into it. It's like an easy goal. I think Gary Lineker. Well, that doesn't help. I think Gary Lineker, I think crisps and the fact he looks a bit like my cousin Darren. Gary Lineker is the master of tappings. Everybody, I don't have to explain what a tapping is, do I? 
Oh, please. Maybe lots of other listeners to this podcast going, oh, thank God, Mike's explained what tapping means. Anyway, I'll go next. My top score, 10-year-old me would not allow anything else. I have got to give my top score to Lieutenant Pigeon. I still find it adorable and lovable and balmy in all the best ways. It brings me joy. Second place, musical youth. The other one that I actually bought on 45 at the time, admittedly. Third place, the Tornado's Telstar. Not much in it there, but those are firmly my top three. There was a point where I was going to put Will and Gareth in last position. I've since recanted. Will and Gareth get into the meh. That leaves Rihanna and Tasmin. Tasmin gets the meh. Rihanna gets the last position because just completely leaves me cold don't get it all right nick i really enjoyed this i think overall i think this is probably the best week we've had for me in terms of i really enjoyed listening to it i enjoyed listening to all the stuff around it all the albums this stuff came from it's been a really really good list so putting anything in last is is mean in a week like this but it is going to be the lieutenant Afraid I just don't get a 58-year-old woman playing on guitar piano the year before I was born. It's just to know. <laughs> In the mezzone, I would like to put, please, uh, the 1980s musical youth, Pastor Ducci and Tasman Archer's Sleeping Satellite. In other weeks, Diamonds by Rihanna would have won this for me, but I'm going to put it in third only because there's just some great stuff. Telstar by the Tornadoes. But the 1960s in second place, a song that I have always loved and I think that everybody should love and everybody needs to listen to it. Um, in Trev's words, someone needs to stick a donk on that, Trev, so you can play it on a Friday night, I reckon. Um, and in first place, I love the Long and Winding Road. I love the original. I've always loved the cover. I have that CD single sat down here somewhere underneath my desk. So, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful song. Interesting set of combined results we got here. We have got equal last place, zero points for Tasmin Archer for the 90s and Rihanna for the 2010s. One point above them in fourth place, we've got Lieutenant Pigeon for the 70s. Then we've got a bit of a jump. Third place, Tornadoes for the 60s. One point above the Tornadoes are joint leaders as of now. Musical Youth for the 80s and Will and Gareth for the 2000s. You did say that the 2000s was the only decade never to win an episode of this, didn't you? This is true. Do you think Will and Gareth could actually bring it home for the 2000s with our listeners? I do not know. I do not. (laughs) Wouldn't that be wrong? Like, and oh, and finally, the 2000s have won with a degree (laughs) of help from the greatest, most famous songwriting duo of all time. I get. With a little help from their friends, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. Well, listeners, I sense that the scoreboard is going to change dramatically once you start sending in your votes. You know the drill. First, second and third favourite songs in descending order of preference, no tied places, and your most bad and hated. Ways you can vote, obviously, premium way to vote is patreon.com forward slash which decade tops please subscribe to that we're heading for triple figures by the end of this season oh yes we are i've given up on threads threads is a dud it's too much faff i can't be maintaining all of these things just like it's not happening on threads but we're still there on x 
the website formerly known as Twitter. On X, we are at Which Decade Tops. On Facebook, search the name of the podcast, you'll find us. And then Gmail, which decade in stops at gmail.com. Your voting deadline this time, 6 p.m. Thursday, the 24th of October. Until then, it is goodbye from DJ Trev. Do all. Goodbye from Nick Parkhouse. Bye-bye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?